Good morning. Welcome. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, okay, good. You're here. All right, great. Um, uh, it's good to see everybody in the house of the Lord today. And today is Palm Sunday, and it's, and it's uh, the time, a uh, special time that we do reflect on what Christ went through that last week. And uh, so that's what the focus is, is going to be, is what he did for us. And as we go into communion this afternoon or, or later on in the service, uh, we're going to be remembering all that he has done as he died on the cross for everyone. So let's, uh, I'm going to ask you, you can remain seated, but uh, we're going to start off with a song. As you know, we've sung it several times. I think you can sing along with us. So uh, let's begin our worship time by singing Written in Red.
You can clap. That's all right. <laughs> we thank the Lord for the opportunity to be able to worship uh, today. It's great to see all of you guys. And um, I'm just looking forward to, uh, so looking forward to next Sunday uh, as we celebrate uh, the resurrection of Christ together. And, and uh, you got a letter in, in the mail this last week. Uh, and that's kind of the theme for us through this year is together. And together we will be next week for one service. And uh, we will meet here at 1030 uh, next Sunday. So just in case you're thinking about coming to the 845 service, there will not be one. If you come at 845, you can sit down in my office and talk with me. But uh, the service will not begin until 1030. So uh, we're looking forward to that. Um, we're thankful to the Lord. Um, if you... Remember last Easter, you were at home, and um, I remember uh, Brian Nichols saying that of all the Sundays to that point that we had met, that was the most lonely Sunday, because, man, just celebrating with family, right, the, the family of God uh, together here in one place, we certainly missed that, so we look forward to gathering uh, next week uh, together uh, at 10.30, so just remember that for next uh, Sunday. I wanted to um, read some scripture this morning uh, from 1 Peter. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Recognizing, obviously, today is Palm Sunday. As we think about the last week of our Lord and leading up to the cross, I, the Lord moved me to this passage really for... Um, Verse 19. But I wanted to read all of it this morning, 17 through 21. In the previous section, he talks about the importance of being obedient and living like um, one who belongs to the Lord, living a holy life. And then, as to me, that's kind of the, the motivation, you know, comes from verses 17 through 21 to live a holy life. That we live a holy life because of what Christ has done for us, right? That, that, that he gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice, as the Bible says. So I'd like for you to stand as we honor the Lord in reading his word, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. Peter says, if you address the, as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed, you were not bought with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you're bought with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished, and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. And look at this last phrase, so that your faith and your hope are in man. Is that what it says? Says, no, your faith and your hope are in God. 
And so as we think about the time that God has for us here on earth, what a blessing it is to be able to call Jesus Christ our Savior and our Lord. And so I trust that this week we will all think about all of the events that led up to the crucifixion of our Savior and come with a great anticipation next Sunday of celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed is our hope. He is the only hope for man. And so let's think about that as we come together in prayer this morning. Lord, indeed, you are only hope. I'm reminded of the song that we used to sing in youth ministry years ago. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I pray that is true for each person in here. I'm always reminded when there's an audience that I cannot assume that everyone belongs to the Lord. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that if there is one here that does not belong to you, that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That they would come to understand that the precious blood was shed for all men. And I pray that, Lord, that today could be the day of salvation for one that's here. And for those of us, Lord, that are in Christ, I pray that this week we would think about that last week of our Savior's life on earth. That we would think about all the things that were presented to Him in those last days and hours leading up to the cross. I'm just amazed, Lord, that you love me so much. I pray that we would stand amazed at your tremendous love for us and that our hope would be that one day you're coming back for those that belong to you. And the Bible says to be together with you forever, never to be apart from you. So I pray this morning that our worship time is honoring to you. I pray that we've already prepared our minds for this morning. And that if we have not, that we would just take that opportunity to just to remind ourselves why we're here, and that is to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We give you our time this morning. We make our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can remain standing as we worship together.
about the love of the cross, but it's the power of the cross. Let's sing that together as we worship.
just the guys. Now the daylight flees. Now the ground
Amen, and thank you, Ron, and a few of the choir members for that. This last week, I was in the promised land of Fayetteville, Arkansas. I took a good friend of mine, Buddy Seal, with me to visit my sister. I hadn't seen her in a few years, and to see my dad, who I've not seen in a while. And uh, we went to Fayetteville, and I was like, I have to show Buddy the university. And so I did, and he said, I'm very, very impressed with this university. And he said, it may be the finest place I've ever visited. So just maybe something like that. You might want to check with him on the wording, but I have a picture of Donald W. Reynolds Razorback Stadium with Buddy Seal right in front of it. One day we may see that picture in this sanctuary. Wouldn't that be nice, buddy? No way. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, this morning we have a pretty heavy topic in front of us, and I'm not quite certain how you're going to receive it, but um, it's in the Word, and so we have to deal with it. It is an issue that all of us face all of the time. It's called communication. How we communicate with others. Does that matter in the Christian life? Does it matter how we communicate with the unbelieving world and the believing world? And I would say it absolutely matters. It matters the way that we communicate with people. And in this particular context, Paul is going to talk to Timothy about how he handles those who are in opposition to him, be it inside the church or outside of the church. I think there's room there for both. Because obviously in the chapter he has in mind Hymenaeus and Philetus, who had said the resurrection had already taken place and it had upset the faith of some. So I do believe that it's important that we understand that within the framework of communication, there is communication to the unbelieving world and communication within the believing world. And how do we do that? <laughs> it's a pretty heavy subject because all of us communicate. And it's pretty heavy because now in our culture, there are many ways to communicate. How many times have you said something to someone wishing you could grab your words as they were being spoken. Because you realized, I shouldn't have said that. Or maybe you've written something on Facebook and you wish that you had not done that. Or you tweeted something, right? Or you sent a text message to someone and only wishing you could get that message back. Our life is spent communicating with people. You remember last week we talked about the issue of conduct, how we behave. Paul talked to Timothy and he said, this is how you need to behave as a vessel of the Lord. We need to have in our minds, as Paul had for Timothy, that we would be honorable vessels to the Lord, pleasing to him in our conduct. And that's something we have to grapple with on a regular basis, our conduct, the way we behave, right? But the way we behave within the church and the way we behave outside the church. Because guess what? People are watching all the time. 
And in this context, it's a pastoral epistle. And so Paul is telling Timothy, look, the church is watching leadership. They're watching you, Timothy, just like they've watched me. But you know there's application beyond that. It's not just for Timothy, but Timothy would have passed on the information to the church at Ephesus. And so it was for the church at Ephesus to consider their conduct and their communication. Isn't that uncomfortable? When you really get down to it, to think about how I communicate and how you communicate with people on a regular basis. Does it matter that we think about these things? I say it matters a lot. Last week, I presented a question to you. What matters to you? Can you put that up there on the screen? Thank you. What matters to you as an individual? And if you were to take a sheet of paper out and say, okay, these are the things that matter to me, where on that list would salvation be? Would it be at the top of the list? Matters most to you. Well, it should be as a Christian. It matters most because we're talking about eternity. But right under that is the issue of sanctification, our life lived for the Lord. And that's something we need to give regular thought to. How am I living for you, Lord? What does that look like in my life? He moves from a vessel of honor to a slave of Christ. You will have in your translations in verse 24, bondservant, but the word is doulos. It's slave. It means that a person as a believer in Christ is a slave to the Lord. That a believer in Christ must surrender his life lived to the Lord. Does that make sense? In other words, you come to Christ, you come to him and you believe in him, you trust in him as Savior and what he did for you on the cross at Calvary. But then there's this rest of your life you spend um, living for him. And it's called in theology sanctification. Being set apart. How does that look? Practically. And that's the heading with which Paul talks to Timothy. Hey look, you're a slave of Christ. You're a bondservant. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You believe that? The Bible tells us that. We've been bought with a price. In that context he says, Therefore glorify God in your body. Part of glorifying the Lord is the way we communicate with people. How does that look in our lives as believers? I want us to consider this section this morning. As we come to our time of the Lord's Supper together, it's so appropriate that the Lord worked it all out. Because last week we talked about conduct, this week we talked about communication, and now we have to consider those things before we... Remember what the Lord did for us, and if there's anything in our lives that needs to change, we're going to pray that the Lord will do that, right? Right. It's interesting what Paul says to Timothy about the Lord's bondservant in this section. He says, verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. You know what that means in the Greek? It means this, it can never be. There's no room for it at all. 
And it's in the present tense, meaning there's no room for it today, tomorrow, the next day, next week, next month, next year. There never can be a time when we're defined as Christians as being quarrelsome. <laughs> That's pretty large, man. If you're Timothy and you're reading that, you're going, oh. But remember, Timothy was a timid man. Paul, not so much. So I wonder how, when Paul's writing those words, if he's not thinking more about himself than he is Timothy. I don't know. But the reality is, Timothy would face some of the same hardships as a pastor and a leader that Paul faced. But the application goes beyond just a pastor and a leader. It goes to Christians. And so he says that a slave of the Lord is not to quarrel. He's not to fight. He's not to be a striker. He's not to be one that looks to put the boxing gloves on and box the opposition. That's not what a servant of the Lord does. You say, hold on a second, Thad. There's a verse in the Bible that says we are to contend earnestly for the faith. That's right. But it's the attitude with which we contend earnestly for the faith. A lot of times people have ruined relationships. Not over the subject itself, but the way they approach the subject. And I think that's most in mind here. The issue of communication is something we cannot avoid. Even the shyest people are going to communicate. But it's how we communicate. The slave of the Lord cannot be a fighter, cannot be a striker. You know what's interesting? That idea of being a striker is in the list as it relates to elders in the church. It says elders, overseers, cannot be pugnacious. That's the word striker. They can't be that way. What happens when leaders are strikers? Mm. There's lots of bridges that are burned, might we say. So we have to really consider how do we respond in times where there is a difficult subject that arises and the temptation is to strike out at someone and look at them and say, can't you see this? <laughs> ah. It's a temptation, is it not? And it's probably happened in the lives of many of us at times. Paul says to Timothy, a slave of the Lord can't be quarrelsome. Solomon, in Proverbs, wrote these words. Every fool is quick to quarrel. I want to admit to you that when I was younger in the ministry, I didn't mind having a good argument. And you know who was always right? Well, you know. As I've gotten older in the Lord, he's reminded me of my position. That I belong to him. There's attitude with which I'm to communicate. And he talks about that in this very section. But there is a propensity in our flesh to quarrel. We like a good fight. In fact, some people, you know them. They like a good fight. Whether they're inside the church or outside the church. Ray Steadman, who was a pastor in Southern California and an author of several books, 
he wrote this, the Lord's bondservant is not out to win arguments. That'll come as news to some people. <laughs> Hold on a second. I thought that was what I was called to do, win arguments. He says the Lord's bondservant is to encourage discussion and examination. We don't avoid the issues. The issues are going to come up, aren't they? Yes, they're going to come up. The discussion is going to come up about certain things. You just can't avoid it. It's out there. Like, for example, people's identity. There's an identity crisis today in our culture. And sometimes we may be forced to talk and to engage with someone about that. My encouragement to you would be just let the word of God speak. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was Male, and there was what? All right, that's it. And people want to engage you further than that. And, oh, can't you? No. This is what God has said. There's male and there's female. You can't change people's minds. You can't make them turn. There's only one that can do that. I read an article recently entitled, The Eight Most Controversial Issues in the Church. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful article? The first is gay marriage on the list. How would you handle a conversation like that with someone? Abortion. Women in leadership. Does the Bible talk about women's roles, men's roles? It does. Is it uncomfortable? Answer, yes. It's so uncomfortable that when I was in college, we had to write in the Corinthians class with Dr. Talley. He made us write papers every week. When I got that syllabus from Dr. Talley, I was like, oh my goodness, every week. I have to go to the library every week. My favorite place to go. I have to go there. And one of the papers that we were to write was women's role in the church. Couldn't that be a pretty good discussion with some people? Sure can be. But what we have to do is make sure that we look at what the Bible says, not what culture says. And so many people are defined by culture. Well, culture says this is acceptable. Well, has God spoken on that? Yeah, but I don't like what it says. Oh, okay. I mean, right? That happens at times where people are going to look at what the Bible says and go, I really don't like that. Maybe we've even done that at times. Women in leadership, type of worship music. There's a subject. When I first went to Berean Bible Church in Green, New York, I had a heart problem with types of worship. I didn't even know I had a heart problem. Now, I'm not talking about the physical heart problem, but there was a problem in my life. I was being judgmental. They had a praise team, and I had never been in a church where there was a praise team and drums, never. And I was like, man, I, this just doesn't seem right. Did you hear what I just said? This just doesn't seem right. The issue wasn't Frank playing the drums. The issue wasn't the other guys with their guitars. The issue was Thad. Thad had a problem. Because the words of the songs doctrinally were accurate. It's just that I had never heard it before, and I didn't prefer it. 
But that could be a great roundtable discussion, could it not? Spiritual gifts. In some churches, that's going to be a really large discussion. And even in conservative evangelical churches, that will be a large discussion. We have to make sure we're biblical. That's all I'm going to ask. That's what Paul wanted of Timothy. Baptism. Sprinkling or immersion. You ever had that conversation with somebody? What does the word baptizo mean? It means to immerse. Well, you know, a person you're sitting across from may not know that. We can't assume that everyone who wears the label of Christianity is familiar with all of the doctrines of Scripture. Can we? Politics. That's a pretty large one this last year. And alcohol. Those are the eight most controversial issues in the church. You say, Thad, this is how I'm going to handle that. When somebody mentions that to me, I'm just going to walk away. I'm going to avoid it. Or if they call me and say, hey, look, I'd like to talk to you about this issue of spiritual gifts. Yeah, I don't look like, I'm not going to have any time in the next week or month. And, and so it's like avoidance. But we don't need to handle it that way. We need to be willing to sit down with people who have questions about doctrine and practice and look at what God says. Not throw, well, this is what I feel like. But this is what God has already said. Not, this is what the culture says, but this is what God said. And see, we can do that without putting on the boxing gloves. Paul told Timothy, don't do that. He said, avoid the quarrels. Notice what he says, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind. And notice that last word in that phrase. Kind to who? All. Uh-oh. Outside the church, inside the church. The, the word itself refers to one who is under control. Who's gentle. In other words, this person has in mind edification and unity. That's what they have in mind. Edification and unity. They don't want disunity. They want to edify. They're not concerned primarily about self. But they're concerned about all. And that's what the extent of the word is here. He says the attitude of kindness is not limited to a few. He says, Paul says, be kind to all, believer and unbeliever. So how are we kind to unbelievers? How are we kind to unbelievers? What's the greatest way we can demonstrate kindness? Share the gospel with them. You know, there's even biblical evidence for that. Share the gospel with the unbeliever. That's the way that we demonstrate kindness to them. For the believer, we have to be willing to sit down and be under control in our discussions. Where there may be differences. And when you say there are differences in the church. 
and even those issues that we talked about briefly. Paul gives the testimony to the Thessalonian church right after, um, well, right after his first missionary journey, leading into the second missionary journey. He's in Philippi, and he goes from Philippi to Thessalonica. He's met in Philippi with opposition. But when he comes to Thessalonica, it tells us about their attitude. Notice what it says. But we prove to be what among you? Gentle. Same word. We prove to be gentle. We prove to be kind. We prove to be under control among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, here it is. Here's the kindness demonstrated. They come to Thessalonica. How are they going to demonstrate kindness to that community? That's what he says. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only what? The gospel of God, but our very own lives. (laughs) Because you have become very dear to us. So when they arrive in Thessalonica, how are they kind to the unbelieving world? They're sharing the gospel. They're sharing the gospel. What's our love like for the unbelieving world? Do we care? I mean, that sounds like a pretty harsh question, maybe. But I think it's really a good one to consider. Do we care? Now listen, we can express kindness to the unbelieving world in different ways. Right? I mean, the church does all the time. They give food out, clothing, There's lots of times where there are issues that take place, like the tornadoes this last week. And you'll see the church right in the forefront, right? And what are they doing? They're demonstrating kindness. But what's the best thing that we can do for a person in this life? Share the gospel with them. Share the gospel. You say, no, it's rebuild their house. No, it's share the gospel. It's share the gospel. Because the house is not eternal. But their lives are. Right? Their lives are. That doesn't mean we don't help them build their house. If we have the ability to help them, we help them. I don't. I can drive a nail. I'm not sure where it's going to end up. But we have the responsibility to share within the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, look, you must be kind to all. And then he says, able to teach. The Lord's slave, he's telling Timothy, must have the ability to communicate the truth of the word of God. That means, just like he told him back in verse 15, he has the ability to accurately divide, rightly divide the word of truth. Isn't that what you're depending on, right, in a sense? When you go to a Sunday school class, that that teacher has done their homework, that they're breaking down what God has said. You remember last week I shared two words with you, and I know you were listening. I can tell just looking at you. You remember the words exegesis and eisegesis? Ex means out of. means this, that when I'm reading this passage, I'm pulling out what the meaning is. I'm not reading into it. Do you know what a lot of the church does? They read into it. You know how I know that? At times I read Facebook. And at times people use verses. And verses are great. I'm all about the Bible. But context, does it matter? Answer, yes. So the next time someone is teaching you, whether it's in here or Sunday school class, maybe a home Bible study, 
What's the context of the passage? What's going on? It matters. The attitude with which one breaks down the truth, though, is really important. We can't be one of those teachers that's like, you got to believe this, this because I said this. No, 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 no. It has to be, this is what God has said. And let's pull out what it means, and then let's apply it to our lives. Um, I wrote down for our consideration something that's probably been in my heart for 20 plus years. That I think is a problem. I, I really believe it's a problem. And I want to explain this. The word of God, I wrote, is to be the resource for one's teaching. It is the resource. It's the resource. It's on the top shelf. Far too many today seem to be willing to use it as a secondary resource instead of the primary resource. It is the primary resource. There is no substitute for the Word of God. Do you agree with that? It is the final authority. Do you know in the last 20 years there's been a struggle? I'm talking about a wrestling match in the church. Well, this pastor said this, and this pastor said that, and this teacher said this, and te this teacher said that. And people are like, scra like scrambled eggs, man. They're like, I don't know what's going on. Well, I believe what he said. Well, I believe what he said. What's the responsibility of the believer? Study the book. It's the primary resource. I have a book in, on my desk called Biblical Eldership by Alexander Strzok. I like the book. It has a lot of great things to say. And Alexander Strzok points to the Word of God a lot in the book. But Alexander Strzok himself, in terms of his thoughts, he's a man. Right? He's a man who knows the Lord and loves the Lord, but he's a man. So what are we going to? What are we spending time doing? I would just encourage us that we would spend the primary time each day we have in the Word of God. Hey, look, I'm all about reading other books. I like to do that myself. I do. And I read them. But there is no substitute. Can we agree on that? There's no substitute for the Word of God. But, you know, there are some people who are tempted to not even open the Word. I was in a setting one time where a pastor got up and he started to speak and he read Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 and then he shut his Bible. And he started talking about things that I was like, what are you doing, dude? I, I was I literally thinking, what are you doing, dude? What are you doing? He was talking about all this story and that story and this story and that story. So, time out. This is a really beautiful section of scripture. We have to be careful. Paul tells Timothy here, the slave of the Lord is able to teach. He's able to break down the text. I have this um, quote by John Gresham Machen. Now, he lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And I know you may be thinking, why are you pulling a quote out from a dude who's been dead a long time? Because you know what? This particular quote that he has is really, really important for consideration. He says, the absence of doctrinal teaching. Now, remember when he's writing this. The absence of doctrinal teaching is one of the many reasons, reasons churches are struggling. 
It's one of the reasons churches struggle. Well, doctrine's boring, right? Is doctrine really boring? It's not boring. It may be boring if you've never opened your Bible much or never considered, like you take the doctrine of God. You may do a street survey, walk around trustful and say, who is God to you? What kind of answers are you going to get? <laughs> All over the board. But then if I just say to you, who is God? Where are you starting? Are you starting with the fact that God has defined himself? He is the eternal, self-existent God. There is no one like him. So it's important that as learners, each and every one of us in this church, that we have in mind sitting under people in Sunday school and small groups and in church, sitting under people who give attention to the Word of God, which, by the way, is not always easy to hear. It's not. Paul is dealing with Timothy by way of his communication and how he relates to others. That is an uncomfortable subject, even for us today. So he says he's able to teach, and then he says patient when wronged. Look at this. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach patient when wronged. This is the only time in the New Testament where you find this phrase occurring. Any of you ever been wronged? How does that look in your life? How does that look in my life? Patient when wronged. That's a rough statement. That's a rough phrase. It means to abide under pressure. It means to abide under pain. Can people at times inflict pain in our lives? Answer, yes. Through communication, answer, yes. You ever been yelled at by another believer? I mean, yelled at. Like been wronged. With the Lord's help, I've been in full-time ministry for 30 years. I've been yelled at. I've had people put their finger in my face. They've entered my personal space. I've had that happen many times. You ever had that happen to you? With believers? We might expect it of the unbelieving world, but in the church, Paul says patient when wronged. I remember one time years ago, not in the state of Alabama, I was doing children's church, that wonderful ministry that people forget. I would encourage you parents not to forget the people who labor in that. My wife and I labored in that in New York. We had this wonderful young man who was a fifth grader. First of all, we shouldn't have had children's church for fifth grade. I changed that. But this young man was a challenge. You ever had one of those kids that are just challenges? He was a challenge. And he was really driving me crazy and my wife crazy. And one of the things you don't do in a church, but hopefully you do with it, I can't spank the kid, right? He needed a spanking, but I couldn't do it. So I said, I'm going to talk with these parents. My wife and I are going to sit down and talk with them. And, and we did. 
And I said, this is how your son is behaving in children's church. We've tried to correct him. Um, we just want to let you guys know that. Oh, well, he would never do that. He, he never behaves that way. And I remember saying, well, just imagine it. Imagine that that's taking place. It's taking place like it's taking place. I had to kick a kid out of Sunday school one time when I was up there in New York. And that's when I was really young. I mean, I was learning green. Man, I was green. I didn't know anything. I'd gone to my pastor. I said, look, he said, Dad, how do you want to handle this? And it was the same kid, and he had said some things to a Sunday school teacher that he should have never said, and he owed him an apology. And I said, you need to apologize to him. And he said, I'm not doing that. Fifth grader. And so after I moved my shoulders around because I was really uncomfortable, I said, well, you can't come back to Sunday school until you apologize to the teacher. Whew. I had, let's just say, I had a few people that came to my office. And we had two services, and it was between services. And I had these people that entered my office and said, you have no right to kick him out of Sunday school. And I mean, their face was red. I said, well, he really needs to apologize to the teacher, and then he's more than welcome to come back and sit in the Sunday school class. Well, Dad, you just can't do that. You don't have the authority. Well, I talked to Phil, and Phil said, if you want to kick him out, kick him out. So I had the authority. I kicked him out of Sunday school. And he did not come back to Sunday school until he apologized to that teacher. During that time, when those people are yelling at me and in my face, I'm like, wow, Lord, this is the ministry? Hey, they didn't teach me this at school. They tell me about Aunt Sally who wouldn't like the carpet or the paint color. They didn't tell me anything about a kid and parents who come along with that who are going to yell at me. Patient when wrong. You know, it's interesting about this word. It's, it's a medicinal term. It was used in the medical field to describe someone enduring pain. We, some of us, maybe can relate to being in pain and needing some attention or some help. But the idea here is of bearing up under hardship or pain medically. Interesting. So patient when wronged. I was thinking of some examples in the Bible and people who endured under hardship and the greatest example of all is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what he said from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You say, all right, well, that's the Lord. I got another example. You remember what Stephen's last words were as he's being stoned? The Bible says in the book of Acts... It says this, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Is it possible to be patient when wronged? Answer, yes. Who helps us with that? The Spirit of God. None of these things are possible without the Spirit of God. We have to have the Spirit. And guys, I, was, I just want to encourage you, if you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. 
the helper resides in you. And so when somebody's coming at you with those boxing gloves and you're like, man, I got my gloves. Let me go get them. No, 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 no. Patient when wrong. You say, man, Thad, how do you do that practically? Well, in the moment, would we all agree that's difficult? But it's not impossible to walk away and say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. It could be a really short prayer. Lord, help me. Paul says to Timothy, as he's dealing with the opposition, patient when wrong, slave of the Lord is that. And then he comes to the last part of this, and he says, instruct with meekness. By the way, the idea of instructing here with meekness is it's just on and on and on. This is the attitude that a, that a slave of the Lord, a teacher, is to have. He's to instruct with meekness. Look at what that means. This is what it means practically. It means this. The slave of the Lord must not think more of himself and his situation more than he does the giving out of the truth. In other words, you know... Mm, I'm just going to back off of this. No, no, no. You see, the responsibility falls on those that lead and teach. We have the responsibility to sit down with people who have genuine questions about theological issues. We don't have permission to walk away and go, well, because that would be thinking of myself first. In other words, I don't want to be in this conflict. I mean, listen, when the ladies and were knocking on my door, beating down my door, coming through my door, I could have shut my door and locked the door. But they walked in and they said, you have no right. And I will never forget my response. You know, we're going to pray about this. We're going to pray that he makes the right decision. That's what we're going to do. Well, how do you think they took that? Not real well. But you know what you do? You leave the results to the Lord. Can we agree on that? He's the one that's going to work in the lives of of people we must be willing to give out the truth and let the lord deal with the results and that's exactly what this passage says isn't it interesting that paul doesn't write this he doesn't say but be kind to all able to teach patient when wrong correcting those he doesn't go right into that but what does he do first he tells us the attitude <laughs> he says with gentleness you know what that means practically I love that person so much. I just want to share with them what the Lord's laid on my heart from the Word. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave the results to the Lord. I'm going to leave the results to the Lord. Because there's a propensity to say, well, I can change their mind. The Lord's in the business of doing that. We may manipulate people for a time. But the Lord is the one that's in the business of change. Notice what it says here. He says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So what do we do? What's the responsibility Timothy had? His responsibility was to sit down and with gentleness, meekness, share and correct some. That's what it says. And Paul may have had in mind in the immediate context, Hymenaeus and Philetus. But obviously there were others there in Ephesus that Timothy dealt with on a regular basis. Just like there are people that we deal with on a regular basis. And what's our responsibility as believers? We're to sit down and with gentleness show them the word. This is what God has said. And notice it says this. 
correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps, what's the next word? God may grant them repentance. God may grant them repentance. The word repentance means a change of attitude towards sin. It's a change of attitude. So that when I sit down with someone, I'm saying, Lord, lead me through your word with the help of your Holy Spirit and change in me if there needs to be change and change in them if there needs to be change. Did you get that? Change in me. It may be something I need to grapple with or deal with. But Paul says to Timothy, he says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth And notice what it says, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now we read that last part and we go, well, held captive by him to do his will. Who's held captive by the devil? People say, unbelievers only. Only it's only unbelievers. Is that true? Not true. Not true. In fact, there's a there is. At times, the devil gets a hold of a believer. Does he not? I mean, all you got to do is read the Corinthian letter, 1 Corinthians. Man, Satan had lots of victory in that, among that group of people. But it's interesting, this same phrase is used in a pretty interesting context. I want to show you this, and then we'll close our time together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have to see this. It's very, very critical. Because when you read that phrase in chapter 2 I think the primary thought is unbelievers and it's true they are held in the trap of the devil but believers are as well in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy verse 7 as he's talking about the issue of overseers and and he comes to deacons beginning in verse 8 But in verse 7, in the context of overseer, notice what it says. This overseer, this elder, this leader in the church must have a good reputation with those where? Outside the church. Let me just stop for a minute and maybe let me think about that. What's your reputation like with those outside the church? You ever thought about that? I didn't share this illustration first service. Oh, the Lord's in charge of all that, and he just put it on my mind, so I, it's, it's for the right service. When I was in New York, I have a lot of illustrations from New York. There was a young man in the youth ministry that, man, he and I just hit it off. Great kid. An excellent soccer player. Not a little good. Like, he could do that flip where those dudes flip backwards. I don't know how they did it. I would never try to demonstrate that. But they flip backwards, and they kick the ball in the net, like, with their body going that way. Anybody do that in here? Okay, no, no, no takers. But he could do that. I mean, it was an amazing move. He was an incredible soccer player. And you know what? He was a part of the youth ministry. And for two years he was. In the third year... First of the year, he didn't come. I'm like, where is he? And so I went by. He didn't live far from where we lived. And I went by and I seen him. His dad said, he's not home. 
He said uh, he, quit, he quit soccer and he's got a new set of friends. So I went by to see him one day and he let me in his room. He, his room, it went from soccer to this kind of almost dark room, if you get my meaning. Like just darkness. It, it was eerie. And uh, so I said, hey, let's take a walk. So we take a walk, walking through the town. I said, man, where you been? He said, Dad, church is filled with hypocrites. I said, that's right. I agree with you. I said, because all of us sin. I sin. You sin. Leaders sin. So in the context of the passage, when Paul's writing about an overseer and him having a good reputation with those outside the church, is that important? Yes. So what was this young man saying? Inconsistency. It's a heavy issue. But notice what he says. Verse 7. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the what? Snare of the devil. Is it possible for leaders even to fall into the snare of the devil? Yes. Yes. Paul knew it. Paul knew it. And Paul wrote to Timothy, look, Timothy, your responsibility is with gentleness and with meekness. You're to present the truth. And you leave the results to the Lord. Can I encourage us to do that? That when opportunities come to talk about some of these controversial issues, that we wouldn't run and hide in a closet, but that we would be willing to sit down with people, with individuals outside the church and inside the church and say, look, I I don't know what's going on here. I really want to know. Or or maybe an opportunity for you to to sit down with someone and say, hey, look, I I need answers. Or maybe it's somebody has an opportunity to sit down with you and they say, hey, look, I don't understand this. I don't understand what God wants with marriage. You say, those kind of questions come up? Yeah, they do. We expect them in our culture, but they're in the church as well. And so we have to be prepared to share with those who are opposed, who are in opposition, so that the Lord may work in the hearts and the lives of not only the unbelievers, but even at times of those in the church who need to repent from the things that are going on in their lives. Guys, I wanted you to um, just think about this morning as we take the Lord's Supper together. I want us all to think about our conduct and our communication. You know, how's that looking in our lives? And um, just take an opportunity to just have some, some silence where you're sitting just to ask the Lord to, to search you and to see what's going on in your life. And so I'm going to encourage you to just spend a minute or two to do that and then we'll watch a video actually before we partake together of the Lord's Supper. So let's uh, bow together for a minute.
Lord, I pray that um, each of us in here would examine our own lives. That we would see if there's any wickedness in us. Lord, I'm quite certain that all of us in here would say that at times we've blown it in communication. That we've sinned at times in that because our attitudes weren't right. Maybe we even had great intentions, but we were trapped by our own desire to be right. We're really not considering most just you working in the lives of people and just taking on the responsibility that you've given us to disseminate the truth. In writing to the Corinthian church, Paul wrote, I planted a water, Apollos watered, God caused the growth. Our responsibility, Lord, is to disseminate the truth. And I pray that we would be committed to that and that we would have an attitude of gentleness and meekness. That we would be kind in our presentation. We wouldn't back away from the truth. We need to contend for the faith that was handed down to us. We need to protect. But Lord, it's the attitude with which we do that at times that can kind of get mixed up for us. I pray that we would be led by your spirit, not by our flesh. Lord, help us to consider those things and even what we talked about last week in our conduct. I know there's a lot for me to consider in my own life, and I'm quite certain that there's things for everyone who's here that's a believer to consider in their own life, whether it's under conduct or communication. Help us, Lord, to, to be honest with you in our examination this morning. I pray that you would be honored, Lord, and that we would take this time to remember what you did for us on the cross. And all these things I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. The verse, do not return evil for evil. We need to be mindful of what our Lord's done for us and ask him to help us in our communication and in our conduct. Because I want to tell you, we can have victory in those areas because of the Spirit of the Lord.
But sometimes those things can get in the way, and I trust you've had an opportunity this morning to maybe confess those things to the Lord. As we take the bread and the juice together, we want to remember the body of our Lord and the blood of our Lord. And um, I'm just going to ask that you would bow, and I'll pray, and then we'll partake of the elements. Lord, as we take this wafer this morning, as we drink the juice, we pray it's not just a, an exercise for us, but that it's a reminder to us of your great sacrifice, your loving sacrifice. Lord, without your sacrifice, there's no remission of sin. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be more thankful. I think there's a tendency to hold on to the world a little too tight for a lot of us, Lord, at times. Help us to let those things go and do as Paul said and set our mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. Help us to be thankful people as we remember, Lord, what you did for us on the cross at Calvary. And all this I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's take the bread together. The author, the author of Hebrews tells us that our Lord shed his blood once for all. It wasn't necessary but one time. And you think about that in contrast to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament where animals were slaughtered over and over and over again. But none was the sacrifice like the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who satisfied the wrath of God. And so as we take the juice this morning, let's remember the blood of our Lord Jesus that was spilt for us. This morning we're going to close our service with a video. That means this, that when the video is over, you may stand up and be dismissed. You don't have to look at me. You don't have to wonder what's going on. You can just stand up and you're free to be dismissed. I do want to remind you that next Sunday we will have one service in here. At 10.30 we will have the other rooms available. But I did want to remind you of that. Uh, I hope you are looking forward to that celebration together as a family. Um, and you'll come prepared, prepared to do that. It's great to see all of you today. Um, I hope I have a chance to speak to, to many of you before you leave today. Let's watch this video as we get ready for what's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleep. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. 
but they don't know that Sundays are coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary. His blood dripping. His body stumbling. And his spirit's burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning and evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nailed my Savior's hands to the cross. They nailed my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raised him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered, and Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard, and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It is only Friday. Sunday is a coming.